Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, my name is Lisa Davis. I'm the Associate Director of our DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. We're very, very excited about the training that we have this morning. Um, we have a, we're very fortunate to have some presenters uh, join us from the Center for Practice Innovations at Columbia University. Um, Dr. Hella Thorning and Dr. Paul Margolis are gonna be talking about um, supervision and the interprofessional team. And we're gonna, um, we're really going to address this issue in relationship to some of the challenges of our current situation and um, how supervisors and teams can think about uh, it's kind of adapting to the current realities. So we're, we're really looking forward to this presentation. And we also have with us, we're very lucky to have Dr. Michelle Renfro, um, who many of you may know, um, is a supervisor here at DMH, been, uh, has been in LA County for many, many years um, and uh, has lots of uh, wonderful experience. And uh, Michelle has agreed to also sort of help us um, kind of chime in as we have some discussion, hopefully about how people are managing, how people are adapting, a little bit about what's happening locally. Um, and so we've got uh, her input and her insight as well. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand this over uh, to uh, our presenters. Thank you so much, Lisa, and good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Margulies. I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, here's the plan. Hella and I have a fair amount of material we're going to present to you, but we want to make this into a discussion. We want to make this into a conversation. So we've tried to design the webinar with chat box questions and polling questions and all sorts of ways in which to hear from you as well as you're hearing from us. And if all goes well, an hour and a half or, or, or so from now, uh, you'll have hopefully some new information and we will have learned and you will have learned from one another what you are doing uh, around supervision and especially under the current circumstances. So as with any kind of training experience, we wanna start with some learning objectives. So learners will understand the structure and importance of the interprofessional team. And we're gonna talk about what that means and providing services to high-risk individuals with serious mental illness. And given our current times, consider adaptations due to current realities. Learners will also identify the elements of professional supervision and consider adaptations to, due to the current realities. Now we know that you're on this webinar likely because you're a supervisor, but you also probably have one or another kind of background. So we're just curious to know, uh, what's your background? We wanna get a little bit of a sense of, of who you are. So we'll give you a few seconds here. If you can please let us know who you are in terms of background, that'd be really useful. So what I'm seeing here is that over 50% of folks come from a social work background, another 30% from a mental health counselor background, and then lots of other folks with different backgrounds beyond that. Thank you. So now we're gonna have another slide and another polling question. So this one is, how long have you been a supervisor? Okay, and there's a wide range here, really quite the distribution. Uh, about a quarter of the folks have been a supervisor for less than six months or so. 17% have been a supervisor for 10 years or more. And then you can see a, a pretty nice uh, even distribution beyond that. 
So thank you for sharing there. And we're gonna do one more polling question, I believe. And this one is about how you do supervision. Do you do it in person? And if so, individually or group and or group? And do you do it online? And if so, individually and or group? Here's what you're telling us. Uh, in person, about almost 80% of, of, of you are telling us you do individual supervision in person, about another 40% do in-person group supervision, but also there's online supervision going on with 60, over 60% 60 doing individual and over a quarter doing online group. So this is helpful for Helen and myself to get a sense of kind of where you're coming from and your experiences, and we'll try to weave this into our conversation as we go along. Thanks, Paul, and thanks, uh, Lisa, and, and everybody out in California for having us uh, here today and to talk about something I think that's really important in terms of how we continue to work um, uh, and how we build our team to work with people who have very uh, complex uh, situations. And now, especially now when this is during a very complex time, so uh, we want to talk to, to you today about uh, the importance of in, interprofessional team collaboration when working with people with severe, severe mental illness. And as you know, individuals with behavioral health conditions face complex challenges, often a combination of psychiatric disorders and substance use. And as we all become keenly aware of, many has also significant health conditions that are often chronic in nature. We also know that our treatment systems are often complex and fragmented and difficult to navigate, and our social environments too are equally um, complex. Although these disorders have biological links, they are also substantially influenced by modifiable social, economic, and environmental uh, conditions that are not only affect individuals, but also whole communities, neighborhoods, and populations. And social determinants influence us all. Health and mental health outcome depends on our race, identity, where we live, among many other factors. And as we now go through COVID-19 pandemic, this has become even more evident. So we, we need teams and we need people to work together uh, to put all these, to put their skill sets together uh, in order to help people in, in these complex environments. There are diagrams over sort of the complexity of understanding social de determinants. Um, let's take a brief moment to review. If you go sort of counterclockwise, you see that poor mental health and risk of mental health uh, mental illness is really impacted by uh, and influenced by unemployment or underemployment, food insecurities, poor access to and quality of healthcare, low or low education or education inequality, poverty, low income, income inequality, poor neighborhoods, social inclusion or social isolation, housing instability, and adverse early uh, life experiences. All of, these, uh, uh, all of these dimensions are really impacted by both, if you look at the lower bar, the longstanding historical and socio uh, sociocultural context in the U US, 
uh, including social position, prejudice and exclusion, especially around race discrimination. And then the top bar, the top red bar, really shows the current, the short term of what's happening right now. And when we think about all the consequences um, that we have learned uh, about the COVID-19 uh, and who, who is mostly affected um, and by the, and, uh, the COVID-19, it really highlights the social determinants and its impact on, on our health and mental health. So many, uh, if not most of our behavioral health teams are comprised of individuals um, who have different professional backgrounds. Uh, and it, exactly because we need to be able to address all of these um, dimensions in a cohesive and coordinated way. Um, and it therefore is so very helpful to have teams of professionals with different knowledge, skill sets and scope of practice to work together. And effective teamwork is really the, the cornerstone of interprofessional collaboration. Uh, when team, team works together, uh, come together, uh, their ability to work towards health and wellness to service participants, families and communities are stronger than any individual effort. So by bringing a team together can also be challenging uh, because it depart it's sort of a departure from the current culture of care provision and clinicians are often trained in specialty models that emphasize distinction among professional fields. And service participants are often a recipient of care and not equal partners, and families and communities are often in the periphery of the teamwork. So we really wanna to try to shift both the culture and norm to more collaborative practice, where all participants can are equal partners and contribute equally to uh, to the efforts toward helping people with complex uh, behavioral health conditions. So please note that when I talk about the interprofessional practice, it's a very um, deliberate use of the term and, and I'm not using uh, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary team because when we think about the interprofessional practice, we really include um, also the uh, the voices of people who um, have lived experience or who are participating in our team. So we think about people um, uh, who have both the peers uh, of lived experience of that or family uh, or family advocates really should be very much part of the team and the interprofessional practice. Um, so we define interprofessional collaborative practice that occurs when multiple health workers, behavioral health workers come together from different professional backgrounds to provide comprehensive health services by working together with patients, their family, caregivers, and community to live at the highest quality of care across settings. Now these interprofessional practice teams, they can, um, they are, as I mentioned to before, before behavioral health or mental health professionals, peer staff, peer specialists, service users, participants, uh, natural support to family members. And where does this take place? It can be in a co coordinated effort. Uh, it can be co-located uh, in, in the same building, for example, uh, integrated as, one, as part of one team. So how do we build the collaborative interprofessional team? 
I'm now going to talk about some of the pointers in building a strong collaborative interprofessional team. So the first point is really to develop a shared mission and vision. What I mean by that is that when we, we have to know the is sort of the same page on understanding who the team is serving. What do we know about the unique challenges that this particular group of people are, are um, challenged with? Uh, what, what do we know about the social determinants for this population? And what is the overall goal of our program? So that the first step is really to ensure that the team have these important conversations so that everyone on the team is on the same page. Now, what is knowing the team and understanding each of the roles is secondly, a second and, and important. Um, for example, a nurse bring unique knowledge and skill sets to the table, which is different from the psychiatrist or the vocational specialist or the mental health professional uh, or somebody, the mental health professional that's working with a family. So, um, and that again differs from the, per, the substance use specialist uh, who uh, might also be on the team. So understanding each person's training, what their role, scope of practice is, uh, can help create synergy and collaboration among the team members towards a common goal. But it's also important to know the people behind the roles. Um, many times when people work closely together, it's important to really understand how each person came into the work. What was it that, that was the driving factor in, in deciding to become um, a professional within the behavioral health uh, field? Um, and also about understanding your race and identity, as well as your strengths and vulnerabilities. Those are important information to share when you work closely with people who have complex issues. And, that way you're also better able to understand each other's thoughts and feelings about the work. Why you may be reacting to a, to a participant in a different way than someone else. Collaborative leadership is also a, a hallmark of an interprofessional team. The, the team leader uh, most likely will not have the expertise of all the professions that are represented on their team but their openness to listening, problem solving, synthesizing information from each of the team members will facilitate development of, an act of action steps that are critical to keep the team on task. And then finally, or not finally, but establishing a framework structure for the team collaboration is also important, that everybody has a sense of when the team meets, um, how long of a meeting, what is the agenda for that particular meeting is very important in each of the ways to get each of the times that the team meets together, that they have a sense of what it is that they're meeting about what they, and what the outcome or the task or the uh, action steps that are needed uh, at the end of each meeting. Interprofessional communication skill now that is another really important point in, in building a strong interprofessional team. Because this is in your communication amongst each other, you're setting the tone for your team. And in that way, you are also modeling for how this team, how your team is also talking and communicating with the participants and their families and the communities that you serve. 
And finally, for this, uh, for this uh, idea of building the professional team, um, it's really important to take a trauma-informed, uh, have a trauma-informed care approach uh, to understand the stress and the trauma's impact on the team members. And uh, as we are working uh, with people with very complex issues who are impacted, um, determined by social determinants, and many times uh, with over, uh, including trauma and stress, understanding that that will have an impact on each person on the team can be very, very important uh, in terms of helping the team work together and understand people's reactions, understand when somebody has to cover for someone else, uh, if something is triggering for the individual. And I think in this particular environment uh, right now with COVID-19, that again is very highlighted because in, in this situation with the COVID-19, we are all in the same boat. Uh, we are all sharing this uh, event, uh, both as people, as professionals. Uh, so keeping that in mind uh, is critical uh, to, to understand people's needs, both in, for, for professional reasons, but also for personal reasons. And when, when you might have to support somebody in a different way that you had done previously. So thinking about the team also from it with a trauma-informed trauma perspective is very important. But sustaining a trained up or a collaborative and professional team can be challenging. Um, and uh, although we all, uh, will endorse the importance of communicating among providers, participants, and their families and social support is this critical to, to care coordination. It may not happen as often as, in, as intended. So having a place where you might lay out or making it very clear how this uh, meeting, how these meetings, how this collaboration takes place um, and have a real frame for that uh, is important to keep to sustain it. So it's not just a team itself that decides upon it, but it's really supported by the agency or the uh, the place of work or the organizational structure. I've talked some element in, in building interprofessional team collaboration and including how to do this during this particular time. I'll now turn it over to you, Paul, to talk more about some guidelines for providing supervision uh, for the individual, uh, for your individual supervisee, uh, some of the challenges and opportunities in that, again, especially because some of us, or many of us are working from home. So supervising from home, it's different, isn't it? So we're looking at some important aspects here. One is the importance of acknowledging feelings, and the second is working having work discipline and timekeeping. So under acknowledging feelings, it's about checking in emotionally and determining if any intervention is required and that our staff's overall wellness is a priority. I know in, in, in my team, uh, I now have a morning uh, Zoom huddle where we literally are checking in with one another uh, you know, each and every day. Uh, and we never would have had some of these conversations we're having now you know, a few months ago. We want to be orienting staff uh, to working from home because, you know, for some of us, it's a real challenge. Uh, for some, it's hard to set boundaries. We wind up putting in actually more work. For others, it's hard to get started and initiate. 
We want to think about, you know, where do you work? Help our staff think through where do you work and the technology involves and comfort with the technology. I don't know about folks on, on today's webinar. Three months ago, I had never heard of Zoom. I now live on Zoom. And it had to be a very quick uh, learning curve. So making sure that our staff are aware of how to use the technology. Having an open door policy and hours where people can reach us. And creating a consistent supervision and team meeting schedule, which is just essential. So then we come to work output and productivity. So there are expectations, aren't there? And they may have changed uh, given the changes and, and our realities. There may be special projects and tasks. We want to be very clear about what's involved and what the expectations are and what the final product should be. You know, unlike you know the way in which we all operated some time ago, uh, accessing one another is different now. So we want to be very clear with our communication. Uh, as a supervisor, I know it's important that I get updates on a regular basis around how people are doing and what they're doing. Literally every morning, I'm getting that from my staff. Uh, and I have to uh, admit, I wasn't necessarily doing that in quite the same way six, six months ago. To provide more structure, give people specific questions to respond to about their work. Uh, workforce development trainings via webinar. I mean, one of the things I know in New York, I don't know if this is happening quite yet in Los Angeles, uh, is we have probably more webinars going on now than I ever thought were humanly possible. And the good news about that is our staff are able to take advantage you know, of the, of the uh, workforce development available through these webinars. And supervisor and staff uh, really reading books, uh, reading journal articles, uh, setting expectations about what people are learning through the sexual learning and sharing with one another, which is also another way of building, a nice way of doing team building. So things are changing in the way in which we do supervision. Uh, and a little bit later, we're going to hear from you about your own experiences with the changes. We've got another poll for you. And the question is, prior to the coronavirus crisis and the transition to emphasizing telehealth, how close was your FSP team to functioning in this interprofessional manner? Okay, so we're going to share what you're telling us. And basically what I'm seeing, if I do my math accurately, it's uh, about 65% of you are saying significantly or very much so. But there are others whose teams were somewhat close to this model, and then about 20% who were not at all or a bit. So it's a wide range here. And our hope is over time, more and more people will be able to respond very much so or significantly. Okay, so now we're gonna to start to use the chat box. And here's really an opportunity where you can learn from one another and we can learn from you. Under the current circumstances, what adaptations are you making or can you make to support your team's interprofessional functioning? Given the givens right now. Great, I see people are responding very nicely, thank you. So let's read some of them out. Uh, increasing frequency of team meetings, more conscious effort to reach out more frequently, a lot more communication with email and phone. I like this one, encouraging regular self-care. Yeah, a lot of checking in. Continue creating structure and new rituals. Using different platforms like Microsoft Teams and, and phone consultations and being, being creative to use the different 
different platforms, maybe not the only, you know, Zoom is not the only one. There are lots of different platforms now that people are discovering. Yeah, I see all sorts of platforms people are, are mentioning, even some I've never heard of. I like this, keeping consistent with ways to acknowledge and validate teams' hard work and celebrate birthdays or other achieve, and other achievements, yeah. Somebody also mentioned creating new rituals, you yeah. know, for the team. Success, celebrate successes. Yeah, thank you everybody, this is terrific. That's terrific. So let's talk about challenges in supervising online. And one of them is this whole issue of establishing privacy especially in talking about, you know, uh, client and client related issues. You know, how do you do that with these online platforms as you're supervising your staff? How are you ensuring privacy? Using headphones with video conference and closing the door to the home office, designated space and headphones. So it's interesting, Paul, some teams are still working in the office here. Uh, yeah. And um, so this this is not this this is more business as maybe almost usual. Yeah. Remind about HIPAA, use only clients' initials or first name only. It's a challenge. Using make sure people are using private space, not using clients' full name. All staff have had to assure that they have space to assure privacy in order to work remotely. That's interesting. And then some folks are talking about how to assure privacy when they're talking with clients. Tell family members when you're going to be talking confidentially with a staff or clients so they will, not, they will know not to interrupt. That's great. And I think there's an important point also here that ask clients where they are um, so that you also have a sense of whether they have the privacy like you have privacy. Yeah. Okay, next. Uh, Next slide, please. So this is about opportunities. What has surprised you in doing supervision online? And then kind of the correlate to that is, is there stuff you're doing you'd like to continue after the crisis is over? Have you learned about supervising in a way that you want to hang on to? See, lots of responses coming in. Staff are more concise. It feels impersonal. Takes a shorter time. I can relate to this one. I'm surprised how tired I am at the end of the day. It feels like a different kind of turn. I, Kayla, I, I can relate to that one. You know, being online is like exhausting. You know, the surprise increased consistency, it's efficient. I'm a relational being and work best in a one-to-one face-to-face setting. Oh my gosh, you're not the only one. Stephanie, you're not the only one. And then the, the, the adaptation is how do we try to bring that into this work when we're now forced to do, some of us are forced to do it remotely. Eva is saying that people can still express emotion. So, um, and some people are more relaxed working from home or perhaps, or from their own home office. People agree with you, Paul, that it's exhausting. Yeah, it is, it really is. This is an interesting one from Alana. It's easier to engage with people individually, but very challenging in a group to keep everyone engaged. Mm. Yeah. So that might be one of the things when you have uh, a, a working or you're meeting with your team, the difference between meeting you know, with the team and then meeting individually with people and whether or not a, a combination so that you both have the team so they continue to build relationships uh, between one another, 
but that you also have that individual time uh, with people um, where maybe some of the more personal issues can come up. Jonathan says, I see the staff in their home environment and they probably see you in your home environment. So it's a small picture of their personal life. I know from my experience, I don't know if it's similar to yours, uh, including kids, including you know uh, pets, including partners and spouses. Uh, you do get to know one another in a very different way. Uh, once again, stay, staying with what surprised you, it's more challenging. Then we have the internet connection being poor. I think we all can tell stories already about that. More people getting sleepy in online meetings. Now, what would you want to hang on to? I don't think we've had many responses to that. Is there something you'd like to continue to do after the crisis is over related to this kind of remote supervision? Any goodness coming out of it for you at this point? Yeah, I think Emily is saying, I, I do hope that they could, it continues because it's less traffic. There you, know. you go. I know one thing I'd like to hold on to is I really did not meet in a formal manner with the teams that work for me uh, literally every morning. Uh, usually we would have had a once a week team meeting and then an as you needed kind of check-in. I am finding these once a morning, uh, we call them team huddles, uh, incredibly helpful in a lot of ways. A good part, of it is reduced paper waste via electronic form sharing and electronic notes. Love to skip the LA rush hour. <laughs> uh, like to continue checking in regularly. We do it twice a day. Wow, and it's been quite beneficial. That's terrific. It seems that everyone is on time when meetings are remote. Isn't that interesting? I have the same experience. I like to keep some meetings remote moving forward. Okay, this is terrific, thanks folks. I think in all seriousness, for today's discussion, but also going forward, one of the questions I think we're all asking ourselves through this whole adaptation, and you know, let's face it, we've had to really turn on a dime around so many different things given the crisis, is what if anything coming out of this that we're now doing you know, would be beneficial to hang on to? I mean, it's true, today we're talking about in your supervision, but I think ultimately the questions will also be about the clinical work that we do and the support work that we do. Uh, I think there's you know, some very important questions to be asked around all of that. So now we're gonna move a little bit more formally to the aspects of supervision. And we're gonna talk about uh, five different elements of supervision. And then one kind of towards the end, that last bullet, an overarching principle. So the elements we're gonna talk about are case presentations, skills training, meaning training your staff with skills, providing group supervision, field mentoring, and database supervision. And the kind of overarching principle around all of this is the importance of creating a safe space for your staff to share their experiences and reactions in an honest and straightforward way. So now on the next slide, we're gonna be showing you an animate, a brief animated video that goes about four minutes or so, uh, that will give you a nice introduction uh, to these aspects of supervision. Many of us provide supervision to practitioners, yet we rarely receive training in effective supervisory methods. So we've identified five helpful tools for your supervision toolkit, case presentation, skills training, 
group supervision, field mentoring, and data-based supervision. You may already integrate some of these components into your supervision. However, let's discuss these helpful tools for supervisors that may help to improve practitioner skills. Case presentations are an effective way for practitioners to receive guidance. It is critical to establish a safe environment for people to honestly discuss their work. Ensure that the meeting tone is welcoming and that you model this behavior. Here is an effective six-step approach that the supervisee may follow when presenting a case. Provide a summary of the background information. Identify challenges faced in working with this client, the reason for the consultation. Respond to clarifying questions that are raised. Brainstorm care strategies. Select a specific care strategy to implement. At the next meeting, the supervisee can report on the client's progress and, if needed, discuss alternative care strategies. Training practitioners to learn new skills can be a valuable way to facilitate practice change. For example, a practitioner working with clients suffering from an anxiety disorder may use progressive muscle relaxation, a behavioral technique used to help manage anxiety. A three-step approach can be used to teach practitioners these techniques or skills. The first step is tell. Tell the practitioner what the skill is, why it is important, and how to do it. The second step is show. Show the practitioner how to perform the skill. The third step is do. Provide the learner with the opportunity to use and refine the skill. Group supervision is efficient and it also allows practitioners to learn from one another. An effective approach is to alternate between case presentations and skills training sessions. Ideally, group supervision should occur regularly. As with case presentations, effectiveness is highly dependent on your attention to creating a safe learning environment. Field mentoring is a timely way to teach and coach. This supervision approach can happen in the office or the field. Field mentoring starts with the supervisor sitting in with a practitioner who is working with a client. It is important to explain why the supervisor is present and to get permission from the client before beginning. The supervisor observes the practitioner-client interaction and when helpful and appropriate, models specific behaviors to coach the practitioner. This is effective because it gives the supervisor a chance to provide immediate feedback. Data-based supervision uses information that is available to the supervisor and the practitioner. This is used to improve the practitioner's performance and can involve tracking important processes and outcomes, such as engagement, symptom improvement, or employment. For example, a practitioner may periodically administer a measure of depression to track a client's symptoms. The practitioner and supervisor can then review the depression measure for the individual, using these data to inform the focus of the supervision. Think about your current supervisory practice. How many of these five components do you now use? Adding and combining tools to your supervisory toolkit can result in greater effectiveness for you and increased success for the practitioners you supervise. Perfect, thank you so much. So Hella, I think this is yours. 
Yeah, so we wanted to talk a little bit about that overarching uh, principle uh, and wanted to hear about, you know, how, how to uh, create a safe space. And we mentioned that earlier on, too, in terms of thinking about people's reactions and understand having that you know, present uh, in, in the either individual meetings or in the team meetings. So we want to ask, so how do you, how can this be done? And, and why is this uh, especially important during this time? So we'll give you a little time to type up. So eliciting, uh, it's okay to ask questions and ask for help, making that part of um, the environment where learning can happen. If you can, if you can feel free uh, to ask the questions um, that you are that you have, um, eliciting feedback, and also checking with staff regularly on how they are feeling emotionally, and and encourage taking days off. Now, I think that may be very, very relevant right now because it's, but, and then really discussing, well, what does that mean to take a day off when you're working from home? How can you really, uh, you know, turn off the computer or uh, your phone? Um, it's okay to make a mistake. Your team will have back you up and you're not alone. That's essential for, I think, for having a strong team is that you, are not alone and that you can have people to really support you uh, and, and be, be creative with you in, in terms of thinking of uh, solutions. Checking in and reminding staff that feedback about the, supervisors, uh, about the supervisor is good and helps the relationship grow. Yeah, so also keep asking, what else do you need? Um, how can I best help you uh, and support you in, in the work? Asking regularly, modeling by sharing own stress of remote work. So, you know, I'm seeing kind of two categories here around safe space as people are typing up. Please keep typing up. Don't let us stop you. Uh, you know, one category has to do with feeling safe in current realities. And, you know, I think probably every one of us, if we're being honest with ourselves and honest with others, uh, is having our ups and downs right now every one of us. And so to have a team and supervisory process where that's understood and acknowledged and supported and people, team members supporting one another, I think is one aspect of the safe space that I certainly wouldn't even have thought of six months ago. Uh, but given the givens now, that's a very important thing. I think the other aspect of the safe space, which was true six months ago and will be true six years from now, is this whole notion of continuous quality improvement and, and the idea, and, and that could be a whole separate, you know, uh, webinar, but the idea that whatever we do isn't perfect and we're constantly looking for opportunities for improvement. And when we find them, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. And so within the supervisory relationship, if together with our supervisees or our team, you know, we identify things we can be doing better. That's something to celebrate. It's not something to like punish people around uh, as long as we then follow up and make things better. So this whole CQI, continuous quality improvement, you know, notion uh, is another way of keeping people safe so that people, you know, can feel comfortable saying, I'm not pleased about how such and such happened. Let's find a better way to do it. Okay, so we're going to move along now. So now what we're going to do is we're gonna look at each of those elements of doing supervision, 
and asking you, asking you, so how can you do it now? So for case presentation, if you're doing case presentations now, how have you adapted it? You know, to current realities of for most of you are working remotely and supervising remotely. And if you haven't begun to do it yet, how can you do it? So let's give you know, we're gonna give you a little time, think it through. If you can please type up in the chat box. How can you do case presentations the way you're doing supervision now? Because Hella and I believe that each and every one of these elements of supervision you can do. Maybe a little differently, maybe with some adaptations. You can still do it though. And if you hadn't been doing this before, this is actually a great opportunity to start doing this kind of thing. So please uh, type up, you know, how can you do case presentations currently? Yeah, there's some technology with Zoom, right? Where you can do use this the screen sharing uh, to share a Word document with info or bullet points or on a case presentation. So that's another way of kind of sort of using the technology that you have to, yeah. um, to do that. Yeah. Take time out during team meetings to provide space for team members to present challenging cases. Right. Yeah. So, and if you build that in, if that's a standing item in team meetings, people get into that and understand and then come prepared. Make sure, Emily says, make sure the case presentations all follow the same structure. Paint a picture of who the client is. And yeah, and I think it's important that there's a structure and everybody knows kind of what, how you're organizing things. And, you know, I don't know if there's any one right structure. There are many good structures, but as long as everybody's playing with the same understandings, that's good. So Peggy is saying something that actually I'm thinking about also is a future kind of thing. Um, she's talking about it. all members of her team uh, is in the office, but uh, given there's no space, not a space large enough to practice social distancing, we call into a call center. So that's another way of using, you know, when we think about coming back and if we need to continue with social distancing, how do you do that in small in, in environments where you might not be able to have or that are large enough to have people sit far apart and maybe continuing this kind of use Zoom or other platforms can, uh, can you can still, you know, you can continue to do the work. Yeah. So there's an example of something to hang on to. Yeah. Is uh, Patsy says uh, we have weekly multi-team case presentation with video conferencing with our medical director. That's cool. Uh, we have been doing case presentations using Microsoft Teams. So that's mm -hmm. another platform. Uh, I send out a template, the specific questions for staff to complete. Excellent. I like this, Emily. Remember to present successful cases. And you know, one of the reasons for that is because we learn from our successes as well. Don't spend 80% of your team's time on 10% of your highest need clients. And then Peggy says, also save time during the meeting to allow staff to voice their concerns. So, yeah, sure. Makes sense. And so it I seems like how people are adapting yeah. and finding platforms, online platforms to make this happen. And, you know, the bottom line is it's eminently doable to do case presentations. Absolutely. And this may be also be one of the areas where the interprofessional team can really identify what, you know, if they have different, comes from different scope of practice, that they really can identify uniquely what they bring to the table um, in terms of the, you know, collaborating uh, together um, as a team. 
Absolutely. So this is about the same set of questions, this time around skills training. How can you train your staff and skills remotely? And I'd be curious, what skills do you train them in? I remember what we were talking about, what that uh, short animated video told you. you know, skills training is about tell, show, and do. So telling you know, your, your staff you know, what the skill is, why it's important, how do you do it, and then demonstrating it to them, showing it to them, and then giving them a chance to practice it. So I see some folks are saying stages of change, using some handouts, motivational interviewing. So these are the skills people are learning. Uh, CBT, DBT, and inform, informed techniques. Nice. This is great. Got lots of responses here. A lot of one. And so, so in terms of the process, Christina's saying a lot of one-on-one -on -one video chat meetings. And, you know, if you're doing video, you can model, you can demonstrate. And then you can observe. And you can role play through your video chat. MI, CBT, DBT all make very much sense, the skills to be teaching. Relaxation. Mindfulness. You see this? I train a lot on relaxation techniques using Zoom, where I model the skill for them. That's perfect. And then at the same time, you may be doing this as well, Jennifer. You could have your staff then, you know, uh, demonstrate it back to you, practice it with you. Role playing and supervision video chat and handouts, effective communication skills. Oh, yeah. Someone is also saying that they, since as you mentioned before, there was a lot, lot of people going to a lot of webinars and learning new things during this time and having a space to bring that back to the team so people can educate one another what they learn. That's great. Keith brings up a very important one, providing education and modeling about appropriate Zoom communication how to dress appropriately. I mean, I put on a white shirt today for this. <laughs> I'll look and tell you, this isn't how I appear on Zoom most days. Just <laughs> uh, yeah. really pay attention, engagement, because we do need, you know, for many of our, our staff, we do need to teach them how to use these platforms. Grounding techniques, breathing techniques, this is excellent. Role-playing, YouTube videos, that's a very good point. So much, you know, if, if you're really careful and go through YouTube, you could find all sorts of videos that model the skills you want to teach your staff, and your staff can find videos that model the skills they want to teach your clients. Role play through video. This is great. I've been doing more role plays, often about engaging or challenging clients. Perfect. And maybe getting an opportunity to talk about things like critical race theory, uh, cultural competence, um, and and spend you know spend some time thinking through with everybody these very important areas. Excellent. These are great ideas, folks. Same question around group supervision. Now, are you doing it? How are you doing it? Are you using Zoom? Any other platforms you're using? Anybody trying it over the phone? What adaptations have you made? Telephone, go to meetings. Ah, FaceTime. Microsoft Teams, Skype, you name it, Helen, people are using it. Yeah. Well, it's really important to have a number of different platforms because at any given time, you know, one platform will give out for a particular. So it's good to have a number of things that you have mm -hmm. available so you can quickly shift over um, to yeah. something else. Yeah. And, and I think we've all had that experience already where, you know, you're in the middle of something and, and the platform gives way. Uh, 
And I think at this point, you know, it, it's happened enough times to me that I don't get flustered that badly anymore. You know, when I try to recover quickly, it's hard. Uh, so folks are giving us all sorts of great answers here. Let's see. Uh, Stephanie says, I do group FSP supervision weekly via Zoom. I go round robin. Ask which clients and clinicians would want to present on, and we go based off of that. Terrific. So you're using your group supervision to do kind of case presentations. Uh, Karen is saying she prepare phone calls because she can walk around. And I, uh, because you really get, if you're sitting in front of the screen and your computer, um, that's not a good place to be all day. Uh, another way probably why, why it can be exhausting. So doing different call, using different call, using different platforms, so methods, so that you can also move around uh, and help your uh, your team members to do the same. Because it's not good for us to be sitting in one position all day. Very good point. And once again, I think the takeaway here is group supervision is doable remotely. And we've got lots of people telling us different ways in which you're doing it. That's for me the bottom line takeaway. Field mentoring, and, and, and part of the question, I guess, is were you doing this in the past? And once again, to remind you what this means, it means sitting in you know, with your supervisee as they're working with a client or running a group or whatever it is they're doing, literally sitting in. But in order to do that, you know, what's important is that you have permission of the individual, that you know, the client is, understands why you're there and gives permission, and it's okay for them to say no. So the question here is, can you do field mentoring, you know, under these circumstances? Can you do remote field mentoring of the remote work that your staff are doing is really what this comes down to. Eva raises the question, has anyone tried triadic supervision over the phone? With the client's permission, a session can be recorded. So mm -hmm. there you're literally joining a phone session as another member. That's one way to do it for sure. You know, our experience has been, and it's not good, but our experience has been that prior to COVID, in many agencies, there isn't nearly the amount of field mentoring that you would hope for. That the opportunities for supervisors, you know, to spend time with their supervisees while they're providing services, you know, it hasn't happened nearly as, as often, I think, as, as one would like. Uh, uh, so under normal circumstances, prior to COVID, you, we would have hoped for more of that to happen and we'd encourage that. So the question is now, given the remote work that so many of you are doing, can you find ways to work this in? Even if it's the first time you've been doing this and then bring it back into your work later on. We've had staff on conference calls shadowing team lead during session with the client. Yeah. I think for people who are still meeting face to face, then uh, practicing the, um, you know, wearing masks and social distancing, you know, that you can still uh, keep observing what goes on, but remembering to wear masks and social distancing. Yeah. yeah. And here's one listening to audio recording together and providing feedback. That's kind of the old fashioned way. And that still works. That works. Okay. We're going to move on. We have, I think, one more of these chat box questions. And it's about database supervision, which once again, traditionally, you know, we've been encouraging long before COVID. And the question is, can you use data now with your remote supervision? And just to remind you, 
what the, what the animated video told us is there are a couple of different kinds of data that you can use. One is about processes, you know, the, 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 how your staff member, you know, is, is doing the work, how they are interviewing somebody, how they're using reflective listening, how they are using shared decision-making or whatever else it is that, that one would expect them to be doing. And the other is the outcomes you're accomplishing. And whatever outcomes you as an agency and as an FSP program are tracking, how you can feed that back into your supervision with practitioners, with your staff. Okay, so we'll give you a few minutes to type this one up. How can database, so I'd be curious what kind of data you can share with us, what data comes to you that you can use in supervision, and then how can you work it into the remote supervision you're doing now? Ah, so we're looking at some folks talking about scales to use as data. Back depression inventories, anxiety scales, PHQ-9. I've learned that the data related to outcomes needs to be analyzed based on our new realities. Tracking with the staff directly is an imperative. Uh, yeah, Julie, you're so correct about that. Lots of measurement of anxiety and depression. Reviewing goals. Yeah, that's data. Some people's care plans. I mean, I think traditionally as supervisors, we haven't looked to that kind of data to guide our work with our supervisees. And, and you know, once again, we, we would want to have this conversation with you even if there was not a COVID crisis. But given current realities, the question is how do we fit it in now? Is data readily available to you as a supervisor and how can you fold that in here? Our agency has a dashboard for each client that shows trends and, and outcome, OMA outcome. Pie charts, it's, uh, that's, that's terrific. You know, Paul, one point that was made a little bit earlier uh, in between these two chat box questions was how to take this, how to think about when you're bringing new people onto the team um, mm -hmm. and how do you do this if you, you know, if you have to be remotely and how do you have people shadow perhaps or learn uh, these, these uh, develop some strategies for how to do that. I think it's also really critical. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that takes some creativity, doesn't it? Yeah. It's doable. I mean, one of the things I would imagine that you are teaching a new staff member who's joined last week is how to do this work remotely, which is a whole other set of skills, isn't it? Reviewing charts, check the assessment, the care plans. Yeah. Okay. We want to thank you for your high level of participation and sharing from your experiences and all. Uh, and we do hope that this has been of some value to you and, and we've accomplished our goals. Thank you. And thanks thank for you. taking the time with us here today. Thank you. Take thank care, you. everybody. Thank you so much.